0: All right. First Samuel 4, uh, 1 through 11, and the text will be on the screen behind me if you need it.
1: And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh And brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Praise be to God. Who thinks Vivian should read every week? Yes! Yes? I'm sorry you have to listen to me now. We're so grateful for Vivian and her husband Larry. They typically go to our dedicated... I mean our first service, and so if you don't know them, uh, get to know them. Uh, lovely people, they're covenant partners here, and we are uh, just so grateful uh, for them. Uh, if you are new, welcome to the Parks Church. So this is, our, this is our weekly gathering. My name is Jake McCarley. I'm one of the elders here, and we are glad that you're here. And as I was uh, prepping for this week and, and going through the text, it, it always strikes me uh, how active the Word of God is, and, and not in the sense of that it. It still applies to what we're doing, although it, it, it does, but uh, more so in terms of how rich it is, how deep it really is. So we covered 11 verses today, and we could spend so much time going through what the Lord uh, could say is saying through those 11 verses, and I'm only going to be able to hit a couple of those today. So I'm always amazed at just how deep the Word of God can be from 11 verses, and I'm also uh, amazed at how, it, how it's kind of the same, right? The same story like God's narrative, this macro narrative that, that we walk through, and this is just one micro narrative that we're going to look at today, um, it's kind of the same. God's narrative and where, pe- where the people of God fit into uh, that narrative. And if you're a student of the Bible, even the, even the text today may remind you of, of several other stories that look kind of like that. People's God met, you know, the people of God mess up. They have a chance. They don't take it. God responds in judgment, right? And so this is, this is not an unfamiliar story if you're a student of the Bible. And if you're a student of yourself, hopefully uh, we will see ourselves in the text. And if, if you don't, then you know, maybe we'll have a point for that or something. I don't know. Um, but, but we'll start out with a little bit of, of context, how we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm going to walk through a little bit of context. We're going to look at a few points that I think that we can pull from the text the Lord wants to For us to sit in this morning, and then we're going to have an extended time of of prayer this morning, where we're going to spend some time in in prayer, and then we'll we'll lead towards uh, communion. But just from a context standpoint, so we are studying through the book of Samuel. Uh, If you're new, we've been at this maybe four or five weeks. This is kind of what we do: We, we we study through books of the Bible. And the book of Samuel is is in terms of the biblical narrative towards the end of the time of the judges. So there's a book called the Judges. It's also a time period. Maybe you can use Exodus as a reference point there. The people leave Exodus. They enter into this time of Judges, and Samuel is going to be the last of the judges. And so this this people group is going to be moving from tribes to this unified kingdom under a king, and Samuel is going to kind of help usher that in. We're going to get to study that over the course of... Samuel. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've seen uh, Samuel's birth to his mother, Hannah. Uh, Hannah is this person who just it loves the Lord, has a very high view of the Lord, and is prayerful towards wanting a son because she is barren. And we see the Lord grant that wish um, that desire of her heart. We, get, we spent a whole week looking at Hannah's response to that in Hannah's prayer, this really beautiful prayer just of, of worship uh, towards God. And so we've gotten to see Samuel, Samuel be born and then his development and his faithfulness in ministering to the things of God. And we've also gotten to meet some of the leaders of Israel so far in our text. We, we've met the priest, uh, Eli, and his two sons, And the text does not speak favorably about these leaders. It's it's a time of, of chaos in terms of leadership. These guys, the text calls them worthless men. And so we, we're starting to see, uh, we're gonna see the ramifications of their decisions today. And the Lord over the past couple of weeks has, has, has told Eli that this was going to be coming. Last week, uh, he calls Samuel up. We get this really cool picture. And we're thinking, man, maybe this is a high point. Samuel's being called. Uh, we're about to, to see some uh, the movement out of this, but we're, we're not quite ready to, to, to exit the consequences of some of these some of these actions. And and the Lord shares with Samuel that he's about to fulfill his promises to Eli, and he's going to do that uh, today regarding the fall of his house. And so chapter four, uh, a couple of things that we want to look at in chapter, chapter four. One is the Philistines. Most of us have heard of the Philistines, yeah? They're, they're, they show up within the Old Testament quite a bit. They're this perennial enemy of the people of Israel, and they, they, they kind of sit on the west border, if you know where Israel is. they the, the Philistines sit on that west border between them and the Mediterranean, and they're a fierce people group. They're, they're fighters. Uh, I saw some archaeological stuff on, on the uh, Philistines, and every time they, they come to like a Philistine dig, they find two main things. One is iron, which makes sense, right? They're a, they're a fierce people group, so weapons of war, swords, and things like that. The second most common thing that they find is beer mugs. And so the Philistines, they like to, to fight and drink beer. That's what they did. And so they're this perennial enemy against... Uh, against Israel, and the God is going to use them. He's going to use them today. He uses them throughout the Old Testament to, to further his mission. And then the second thing that, that just contextually want to keep in mind today is the role of the Ark of the Covenant in the people's lives. And so the Ark of the Covenant, many of you uh, may be familiar uh, with that, represented the presence of God. It not only represented it, it was the presence of God. This is where God's kind of manifest glory would sit, which is, is on the Ark of uh, the Covenant. Uh, most likely, this is where God called Samuel from last week in chapter 3, where we heard him calling those first two times before he, in verse 10, in, ver- in chapter 3, come and he came and stood. So before he came and stood, he was likely calling Samuel from the Ark of the Covenant. So it not only represented uh, the presence and kind of the glory of God, but it also represented what it meant to the people. And so if you remember, the things that, that were contained within the Ark of the Covenant were the law of Moses, so the Ten Commandments, manna and the staff of Aaron. And so the people not only saw it as the presence, but this constant reminder that, that God commands us in, in, in the law, uh, God provides for us in remembering the manna, and, and God saves us. And there's a, kind of a backstory with Aaron's staff there. So it's really important to, culturally to the, people, uh, to the people of God. And we, so we enter the story this morning in, in seeing the result of that, that high view or what should have been a very high view of God that's become distorted. And we can relate to this in a sense because we know that our view of God, our view of his glory, is the lens and the filter by which we see everything else. I think most of us may have heard that A.W. Tozer quote who says, the most, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, and that makes sense because it's our orientation. It's like how we view the next thing that we're gonna do. It matters what our view of God is in that context. And Israel has lost a reverence for God, a reverence for God and who He is. And they've decided that He is more useful to them than He is worthy. So instead of having this posture of God is worthy, they view Him as God is is this useful thing that we can bring into what we're doing. And it's important to note that that uh, this happened over a long period of time. So it kind of feels abrupt. We, we go from this really neat moment with Samuel, and then it jumps right into now Israel went out to battle. But this was actually happening over a long period of time, and we've, we've gotten to see that as we've studied the first three chapters of Israel. And, and the, the kind of summary is they, they've come to depend on the promises of God. They're going to call on the promises of God today, uh, but they pay no regard to to his demands, So they're okay with Jesus, or in this sense, they're okay with God as, as Savior, uh, but they're not really okay with him being Lord of, of, their, of their nation. And so they go to battle, right? They go to battle in one through three here, and what happens? They lose, handily. They lose 4,000 people in this uh, first battle. And at first glance, we see that maybe the elders get it. Maybe the elders get it, because we see here they say, Uh, The Philistines drew up in line, killed four thousand of their men in verse three. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, "Why has the Lord defeated us today before before the Philistines?" And so they know why they lost. So that's a good start, right? So it's it's not the Philistines who defeated us. It's clearly there's something off in our in our relationship um, with God. God has uh, defeated us. It's a really great start. and they have this opportunity now to change their orientation, to, to change an orientation towards God as God is worthy and, and, and they choose not to take it. And, and it's important to note also that they knew what to do. These leaders knew what to do. So God did not just put them in the play and just say, hey, I hope you guys can kind of figure out what to do when you mess up. God had been very clear with his people and these elders would have known um, what to do. Any guesses, this is true across the whole biblical narrative, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, in terms of what we should do when we're out of relationship with God. Any guesses as to what God's already asked them to do? Any guesses? Well, let's, let's look at a couple. So let's look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which they would have had and they would have known. Let's look at Leviticus 26 first. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if Then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Deuteronomy, very similar. God is kind of in 28 and 29 in Deuteronomy. uh, It would be good to go back and read through that. He's kind of talking about the consequences of what his judgment would look like. But then he always provides a way back to himself. And when all these things come upon you, talking about these consequences, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord has scattered you, so so the, the elders have no excuse here. They they know what to do. They know that repentance is what they're supposed to do to reconcile themselves to God, and they just they just choose not to do it. They they choose uh, to see God as useful, and they choose self sufficiency over faith. God asks for faith, and they choose self sufficiency. And at first glance, as we look at four through nine, it looks like they're choosing faith. Looks like they're choosing faith. Send for the ark. Verse four, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which is enthroned upon the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were with the ark of the covenant of God. Okay, so they go, kind of looks like they're choosing faith. Verse five, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, they gave a mighty shout. So they're recognizing the power of the ark. So maybe they're choosing faith, but they're, they're not. But they're not. Uh, they've clearly missed the condition of the heart. Instead of faith, they're actually uh, choosing their own path. Bring God here to help us. Bring him here to save us is, is what they've decided to do. And this really couldn't be more clear. Who's carrying the ark? The two guys that the Lord has repeatedly said are, are missing the mark in terms of leadership. They have them carry the ark into the camp. And this kind of self-sufficiency is the opposite of faith. So the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is self-sufficiency, which is what they're choosing here. We know without faith it's impossible to please God. They're choosing self-sufficiently. So what is our parallel to this? And I want to spend, I want to camp here just a little bit of time, and I want to look at some data. So is anyone here, is data relatable to you? Do you like data? Is that kind of a thing? Some of you, like four. So um, I'm not smart enough to be an engineer, but I spend a lot of time with engineers, and and my mind kind of thinks like that. And so I want to look at some data. And just a word of warning, I'm, I am not going to caveat anything I'm about to say. It makes a few people uh, nervous, my wife, most of them. Um, and so I want to look at this data, and, and I want to start with the question of, is the world getting better, just in a general sense? Like, What's your feeling about that? Do you feel like the world is getting better from a historical context? Let's look, at, let's look at some data on, on, on that. So, so there are a lot of different metrics we could look at. I pulled three, and I specifically want to look at poverty. And the summary is we're on the far right-hand side of this chart that you can see. Um, most of history, people lived in poverty, most of history. They lived in a subsistence level, kind of you know, paycheck to paycheck maybe is a way to think about that. And then over the last hundred years and really in the last fifty or so, we've seen this dramatic change in poverty. This is a global number. So for the first time ever, uh, poverty in terms of is is below ten percent on from a global scale, this massive change. And it's not only in the po- it's not only in poverty, it's also in education and literary rates and life expectancy and mortality rates of children. We see these these drastic change in metrics over the last five years. It's incredible. It's, we actually have this unprecedented time. Our point in history, our, how we relate to the world, is really unlike most of history. It's really unlike most of history as, as we think about things. It's, we're in the exact opposite position of, of most of history. Okay, and so to, to kind of double click on or kind of look at that poverty line, I, I want to show you just how different it is. Okay, so I want to look at Uh, the average person when Jesus was on earth, and honestly, we could have used 1800s for this, but we're gonna use Jesus' time uh, as a reflection of this. 90% of the population when Jesus was walking the earth lived at $35,000 or below. They lived below what we would consider the the poverty line. Now, this is adjusted for 2020 data, by the way, just so that, (laughs) they're really rich, no, no. So they live below the the poverty line. 90% of the people that Jesus would have been talking to when he was giving talks on wealth and the dangers of wealth, most of them would have been in the bottom. That's where those people would have sat. Where we are in McKinney in 2022, and this is actually 2020 data, if that matters to you, is that 94% of the population lives above that. So we are the exact opposite of of kind of the, the common person whenever Jesus was was doing his, his talks, so much so that our median income, family income, is around $100,000 a year versus thirty five dollars uh, down here for most of history. And I could probably make an argument, it's 94% that with our safety nets and our social programs and our nonprofits, I could probably make the argument that all of us live above that. So we are actually the wealthy in all of these stories. That, that's our context. We're the wealthy. And this gap, this gap between what most of history experienced and what we actually experienced is going to continue to grow. There was a, uh, Elon Musk, maybe some of you know him, had a shareholder meeting last week, and he was talking about um, Optimus, which is his humanoid robot. Are any of you follow that? It's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, one guy back there. I see you. Um, and this is what he said to his shareholders, in case you weren't at the shareholder meeting. Optimus will herald a future of abundance, a future where there is no poverty, where people can have whatever they want, in terms of products or services, it really is a fundamental change of civilization uh, as we know it. This isn't just a pie-in-the-sky idea. I actually think that this is probably where we're heading. I don't know if my kids will see it. I'm pretty sure my, my grandkids will have to, to wrestle with this, this unheralded abundance that the world will have. And so it raises the question of, is this a good thing? Is this direction a good thing to have that, that level of abundance? Maybe, maybe not. The next set of data, this is the last one, and for those who don't like data. The next one is church attendance. So I couldn't find whole life disciples, but Gallup's been doing a poll for a long time around church attendance that gives us an indicative view of what's happening with people's relationship with God. So this is church attendance. So abundance is going like this, and if you're listening on the podcast, I'm pointing up and to the right. And church attendance is going like this, right? Right? So, is there a relationship between the changing abundance and the need for God? Important data point: the, the data that, that tracks. Do you believe that God exists? Has not really changed. That's kind of been steady uh, throughout uh, several decades. It's about runs at about eighty percent of most people believe that God exists. It's just the need for God has changed. So the, the need for God in someone's life seems to be seems to be changing. And so, what is this? Is there a relationship? It's just a question. I don't have the definitive answer. Is there a relationship between this change in abundance and this need for God in our lives? And we look at the story today, and what's happening is they're responding to an external problem in the story, responding to an external problem instead of looking inside and saying, what is it that's causing me uh, to not view God rightly? What is it that's causing me to not have faith in what uh, God has asked me? To step into, they're looking at an external problem, and I really think we have to look internally. I really believe that uh, w- while we have all the tech, and the tech is, is, is drastically changing, and I'm a big tech fan, I li- I'm from tech, that's, that's my context, and we have all these resources, and we have knowledge, and we've got so much, even around the things of God, we have so much knowledge and podcasts and perspectives, and we have all of this stuff, I think it may be the most dangerous time in history for making disciples, I think it may be the most dangerous time in history for making disciples. Not because of some external actor in the story. Maybe it's the Philistines or we forgot the things of God. It's not an external actor that makes where we're at dangerous. It's not the Democrats or the Republicans or the atheists or Disney, although they seem to be going downhill, right? It's not an external actor. There's something going on internally. And we've seen historically that persecution, which we may think is the opposite of kind of having an abundant culture, seems to ignite the church. Why is that? Why does persecution ignite the church? And and, and abundance, seemingly, there seems to be a correlation with this numbness that comes. Why is that? And so I really want us to be thinking about what role is abundance playing in our desire to become more like Jesus? Specifically, what role is your abundance, all of you, all of us, me, What role is abundance playing in my life, in my desire to become more like Jesus? And it's important because counterintuitively in our story today, the thing they thought was going to save them actually ends up defeating them. So they think the ark is going to save them, and so they bring it into the camp. And what ends up happening is uh, the Philistines actually have a very high view of God. You see this in our text. Woe to us that the God of Israel has come into their camp. They have a higher view of God than the Israelites do. And so the thing that they thought was going to save them, the thing that they thought was good, actually ignites the Philistines to fight like they've never fought before and ends up defeating them. It's kind of counterintuitive, right? The thing they thought was good ends up defeating them. And so as we come to the end of the story, and we're seeing that they're trying to, to use God through self-sufficiency, we see that they land on a glory that fades. Their, their glory comes to an end today in in their story versus acknowledging the glory of God. This personal glory costs them the glory of God. And in this sense, it costs them the presence of God. So they lose the ark. The ark to them is the presence of God. They lose the presence of God, which is the literal definition of hell. The absence of the presence of God is the definition of hell. And so it's a catastrophic loss. And, and I was thinking about this in terms of from a, from a leadership standpoint, because it's not just the priests. The priests were, were not doing... Uh, the things that they should have. But the elders are included in this as well, who, who should have been able to, to adjust uh, what's going on with the priest. But the leaders, their choices affected the whole people. They lose 30,000 people. They lose the presence of God. It's a devastating uh, loss because of the impact of the leaders' choices in leading them into this corporate and disobedience. And so it's a, it's a really drastic outcome for the people of Israel. And so we have to ask the question of, was God's glory actually affected by that? So the summary of our story today, right? People disobey repeatedly. His elders and priests were a disaster. His leaders, after losing 4,000 people, ignored what they knew, what God had told them in terms of how to correct that. Uh, Instead of of repenting, uh, they choose to try to use God. And then they lose 30,000 people. And then they lose the presence of the God. Not a great day. Not a great day for the people of Israel, right? Did that tarnish God's glory in any way? This is his people, right? Thankfully, thankfully his glory doesn't need us to be what it is. Thankfully, it does not need us to be what it is. It, it invites us into it. It doesn't need us. It invites us into it. And this is where we get to zoom out, and, and we get to see this larger story and the mercy of God by recognizing that this is his story, and we find our place in, in it. What is our orientation to his story with what he's Doing. He's the lead character. We don't, he doesn't come with us. We don't bring him into what we're doing. God is the larger context, and he, he always provides a way back to himself. He did it here. He's, he's done it for us. He provides a way back to himself. And so, Sam, you can join me if you, if you can. I was sitting with a group of uh, other entrepreneurs on, uh, what's today, Sunday, uh, Friday. I rarely know what day it is. It's, it's a thing. Um, I was sitting with some other entrepreneurs on Friday, and we were talking about, for, for, for short, uh, faith and work, and, and really talking about both in our lives and in working with other people who desire to be entrepreneurs, this difference between intent, the intent to do something, and the impact of that. Or you could think action, the difference between intent and action. And we want to hear the voice of the Lord. We want to discern what He's doing, and we want to step into what he's asking us to do from a, from a work standpoint. That last part is the hard part. It's the stepping into that's the hard part. And many have intent. I hear great man pitches all day, great ideas, uh, but, but very few are able to cross into, into impact, into action. And it, sometimes it's knowledge. Sometimes it's like, hey, you just don't know what to do. I don't know how to be an entrepreneur. How do I, how do I step into that? Sometimes it's knowledge, but most of the time, it always circles back to the willingness to sacrifice. There's always a cost. God calls you to build something. There's always a cost for you to step into that, to step into that faith. Intent, the idea, it only becomes something in stepping into it. And so intent by itself, and this is really tough to hear when I'm sitting with people. And honestly, when my friends remind me of this, um, there is no value in the intent. We all have to start there, but there's no value in the intent. So you can read all the books and have the ideas and listen to the podcast and do things that entrepreneurs do, but at the end of the day, if you want to be an entrepreneur, it come, it, you, every one of us, it, you have to step up to the line and step out in faith and do the thing that God is asking you to do. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. It requires a stepping out into faith. And so most walk away sad uh, from that because they they have the intent they just they just don't they don't have the faith to step into what god's asking them to do and it's really sad they're sad i'm sad Uh, but but some do and they step into that and it's this beautiful thing to watch someone step into what to what god has them to build And they they step into it with this idea that God is stepping, is is giving me this thing to do because of the outcome of what I'm planning. I'm going to help a million patients. I'm going to sequester a million pounds of carbon. I'm going to help people get insurance. I'm going to do whatever outcome you think is tied to your business venture. And what happens every time, ask any builder in here, what happens is you realize the impact of what God's calling you to is himself. He's calling you to himself. You get to experience himself in stepping out in faith and stepping out in obedience to what he's calling you to do. And the glory, what, what reflects the glory is not the accomplishment of the business. I've sat with people who have crazy successful businesses, people whose businesses completely failed, people who look like a hero, people who look like a fool, and they are equally content because the glory of God is reflected in their obedience. It's reflected in their obedience. Not, not in the outcome. And I was thinking about that on, the, on my way home from work, and I was like, man, this, this is not a metaphor for the life of faith. A metaphor is it's like this. This is the life of faith. Relationships are like this. Friendships are like this. The work that you do, if you're not an entrepreneur or whatever, your work is like this. Your family is like this. God calls and we respond in faith and we live into that, or we don't. It's the life of faith. And just like in building uh, intent, there's, there's just no value in it. Faith, faith gets its value in the obedience. It's where faith becomes faith, is in the obedience. And I say this love, lovingly, otherwise it's not faith. It's just intent. And we want to be a people who listen to God and who step out in, in obedience. So we're going to spend some time in prayer. Sam's going to yeah. lead us.
2: That reminds me of a, yeah. my, one of my daughters. Who, if I tell her to do something, you know, I, I give her a couple chances to obey, and then um, she refuses. Yeah. No, no. And then I say, all right, you have. There's a consequence. And she always says, I'm I'm, I was going to obey. I I want to obey. Yeah. I was going yeah. to obey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Doesn't work like that. We say delayed obedience is disobedience. Mm. Class, we're gonna spend some time praying. Um, we're gonna we've got uh, several minutes here before we approach the tables of communion to um, pray together, and uh, we're gonna start with adoration. If you're in Praxis groups, that's kind of where we've started this semester. The semester theme has been communion with God and it's important to start at adoration because it reorients us to a right perspective of who God is. Um, I think we have a tendency to kind of shape God into the type of God we think he should be. That's like our that's our tendency. He, He starts sounding like us. He starts acting like us and then when we do that it makes it very easy to box him in and ignore him see him as useful maybe yeah. disobey him because he's not actually god he's he's someone that we've created that we call god and so prayers of adoration reorient our our perception to reality to who god actually is how massively powerful how how much of a mystery god is how Uh, how how loving God is, how kind God is, how faithful God is. So our trust um, in God is directly tied to how we believe he's faithful and who he actually is. Um, So the enemy wants to thwart that. So we're going to start with prayers of adoration. You can bow your head. You can stand. You can kneel. um, You can close your eyes. But we're just going to start by reorienting to God's worthiness, reorienting to the reality that we are totally dependent on Him. Every breath, every heartbeat. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would orient our hearts and our minds to who God is. We revere you, we honor you, God. We submit our loyalty to you, our adoration. You're the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You existed before time. And you have created everything that exists. You hold the earth in your hands, the oceans in your hands. You measure space and the heavens with your fingers. The earth is your footstool, and we are nothing more than dust. You know the weight of this earth.
0: Last week we were talking about the fact that God speaks, God is speaking. What is he saying to you? What is he asking you to step out in in faith what is he asking you to do maybe he's asking you to do something maybe he's asking you to stop doing something what is he asking can I just tell you it's not gonna feel safe That's how you know it. It's not going to feel safe. But it's going to be good. What is he asking? What are you asking of us, God, as a people?
2: He so desires to speak to you. He waits for you in the morning, and he's there in the evening. And all the moments in between. As we take a moment to consider approaching these tables, the Lord's table, to receive the communion elements, we're gonna stop down and we're gonna we're gonna repent and we're gonna confess how we've been misaligned on, on what Jake is spoken on this morning. Have we been like the Israelite people and tried to use God? Let's take a moment in in reflection and just repent how we've stayed in intent and not moved to impact, not moved to obedience, where we're choosing self-sufficiency over faith. God, we repent. May fear of the Lord come back. Restore to us a right fear of you being out from underneath your wing. We repent. We repent of our sin. Repent of our pride.
0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your patience with us that you speak and we're dull of hearing. We're so grateful that you speak. Move us. Move us to respond. Move us to respond. So with this taste of grape juice in our mouth, we remember the cost. We evaluate. We count the cost of following you we say you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worthy. And so I pray our our repentance is praise to you, Lord. It's an acknowledgement of who you are and that you accept our repentance. We know that you do, but we just offer it this morning. We love you.